you brought a Bible tonight, turn open with me to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 2. I'm going to be reading some selections from chapter 2 and from chapter 3. Let's give our attention tonight to the reading of God's Word. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Skip over now to chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's son, the priest, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all of the fat that is on the entrails. And the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Yeah. You know, I've always found it curious that there is a, um, uh, an option under your relationship status on Facebook for it's complicated. I've always loved that. And I realize that most people, when they mark that, are actually mostly kidding about it. But I've always maintained that college is the first time, isn't it? When you begin to realize that relationships can be complicated. You know, there's this, there's this person, you know, we're kind of hanging out. We spent a whole lot of time together. Uh, we decided a little while after that, that we liked each other, whatever in the world that means. Uh, we made out a couple of times and 
You know, we don't really know what that means. Uh, but then, you know, then we want to date each other, but you don't know if I like them that way or whatever else. In other words, we go through this huge ordeal of suddenly realizing what Facebook has already told us, that things are complicated. I've always submitted, and it's been one of my sort of sticks over the years, that I think one of the reasons why relationships get complicated, as they often can be, is because we're typically struggling with what's going on between us. For lack of a better word, every relationship, I try to argue, begs for a definition. Have you noticed that? We want to know what is the deal between the two of us. What do we mean by these words that we use? By, oh, I really like them, or I really want to date them, or I'm just friends with them, right? The whole thing, quite frankly, can get very confusing. Well, look, if human relationships are capable of that level of complexity, we really ought not be surprised when we find that our relationship to God is capable of the same complexity. In other words, there's oftentimes in which we're struggling with that question, and I would simply offer it to you tonight. What is it that's going on between you and God tonight, if there be such a being? (laughs) What would you describe is the nature of your relationship? You know, I've always thought that wrestling with this question required us to deal with, in my opinion, two oftentimes unsettling realities. You know, reality number one is this whole struggle of, you know, if there's really a God out there, I wonder if I'm on his good side. You know what I mean by that? (laughs) In other words, uh, am I on the right side of his good pleasure? For many of us, that's a matter of course. Well, of course I am. But the second question sort of follows closely behind that, which has to do with God's will or his, his law, his rules that he gives to us, uh, that's revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. Am I pleasing God at this moment with what I'm doing before him? Is he pleased with the way I behave, we start to ask. <laughs> now look, um, a number of years ago, I was completely and utterly convinced by Tim Keller when he suggested that the one of the most fundamental questions that we can wrestle with in our relationship to God deals with those two realities about my wrestling with the law and my being on God's good side. How do you put those two together? And Keller says that when you really narrow it down, there's only two options that you can have in that scenario. On the one hand, you can say, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, I'm doing well. I'm perfectly obedient to God. And because of what I'm doing, he loves me. And our relationship is okay. That's one way of thinking about it. The other option, he says, (laughs) is actually the Christian option, which is God reveals his love to me in spite of my failures. And on the basis of that revelation, he calls me to live a holy life. Did you catch the difference between those two? Because in many ways, everyone can boil down their relationship to God on one of those two bases. On the one hand, you can either say, I'm doing a good thing, so therefore God likes me. Or God loves me in spite of my failures before him. And on the basis of that, he calls me to live a holy life. Which is it? (laughs) To be honest with you, in many ways, that helps kind of plow through some of the questions that we're faced when when we're tempted to look at God and say, it's complicated. 
Look, we are searching this semester in RUF through this unbelievably obscure book to try to figure out what in the world it means. And we said last week in introducing this whole question of all of these sacrifices, that the meaning of these sacrifices are about having a relationship with God. God reveals to these ancient people the terms, if you will, of what it means to relate to him. He's defining the relationship. And the sacrifices help us have that DTR, if you will, to speak the language of the young people, right? That's how you connect, right? In other words, the sacrifices help define what it is that's going on between you and God. Let's dive into this because in chapter two and three, we see some interesting things. I just want you to notice three things. I want you to see, first of all, the offering. I want you to notice, secondly, the order. And then I want you to notice the obligation. I'll start with the letter O. How about that? Fancy preacher tricks. Okay. First of all, the offerings. I want you to look at these. I know your eyes were rolling back in your head when I was reading all that, but bear with me. The first offering we get is something called the grain offering. The word there literally that we have translated grain means a gift. Uh, It means a tribute offering. Uh, In ancient Near Eastern times, we know from um, uh, research and history, when a rival king would come and take over a country, uh, the new conquered uh, vassals would come and bring a tribute to the new king. That makes sense? Or a grain offering, uh, an offering of of royal tribute, as it were. And so God goes on to explain that you need to come and bring either raw grain in the first sense, or you can bring actual baked bread. Uh, The the bread, if you're going to make it, has to have oil and incense in it. Actually, the grain does. And you would take a portion of it and burn it on the altar. And it would make this wonderful smell as you burned those grains up that God described as a pleasing aroma to him. The other portion you gave to the priests, that is Aaron and his sons. Now we're going to talk a whole lot more about the priests in weeks to come. But the priests' main job was dealing with this temple here in the middle of the the people. And so the grain was intended to give them a portion of something to eat. It was the way in which they made their living on the basis of people's offerings, right? But here's what I want you to remember. The grain offering is interesting, I think, for two reasons. First of all, in the grain offering, you find that there was not supposed to be any honey or any leaven in the bread that you baked and gave to God. Now, look, this is one of a long list of weird details that you're going to get in the book of Leviticus that at first can freak you out. But when you really think about it, shouldn't be that foreign to you. The reason most scholars think that God forbid his people to put honey or leaven inside the bread was because if you put those in there, the sugars would begin to break down and there would be a process of fermentation. Now, fermentation was not necessarily evil in God's eyes. What he was saying was, is that fermentation is fundamentally a process of decay, and every time you come and bring this fellowship offering, this, uh, this grain offering to me, I want you to realize that there's no decay in that. I don't want anything about that tribute to me to smell of the smell of decay. I'm not putting any of that anywhere. I don't want you to put anywhere in that. And so God says that I want this idea to remind you of life. To remind you of something positive, of something that, that, that gets all the way through your system. Right? The second thing he says, if you're going to bring bread, you got to put it with salt. 
It's actually a big deal. In the rest of chapter 2, three times, God says, don't forget the salt. By the way, don't forget the salt. Did I mention to not forget the salt? So much so that you're trying to figure out what in the world is the reason for the salt. Well, look, throughout the Bible, salt is a metaphor. And it's a metaphor for permanence. It's a metaphor for constancy. It's a metaphor for, for steadfastness over a length of time. It's a big concept, so much so that it calls it the the salt of the covenant. The covenant was this agreement that God had made with his people to bond himself to them. And so what these people were saying when they brought the salt was they were looking and saying that we are living examples to show the world what it means to follow God's promise. By the way, this is where Jesus picks up on the theme in Matthew chapter 5. Do you remember what he says to his followers? He says, you are the what? Salt of the earth. In other words, you are about, all of my followers, Jesus said, are about showing the rest of the world what it means to follow me. And he gets that idea from the grain offering, okay? In other words, it was a way of showing God total devotion, the grain offering. Secondly, then we start to read in chapter 3 about this thing called the peace offering. Now, the word peace there is a, a, a Jewish word, a Hebrew word that you might be familiar with. It's the Hebrew word shalom. And when you see the word translated, it's usually translated very simply Peace, But the word is actually, at least in the Jewish language, um, a whole lot more rounded out than that. The word shalom in the Hebrew means more of like a wholeness, a a happiness, a deep-seated satisfaction in life. When someone wished you shalom, they wished you the most fundamental ease and understanding and peace in life. It was a fully orbed concept. In other words, this was an offering that was about fellowship between you and God. You are coming to show that God and I are now on good terms. And what God told you to do was to go and enjoy it. Now, then you get the weird details about the kidneys and the lobe of the liver and the entrails. And you're like, okay, this is getting awfully weird. What is that about? Well, bear with me. Uh, our palates have changed a whole lot in the last multi-thousand years since this was written. And so it's hard for us to sort of grasp the idea that in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, those parts of the animal were actually considered delicacies. They were the fancy part of the meal, uh, though unbelievably distasteful to us. Um, and what, what the writer said was, is God said, I want you to take those and I want you those to offer that to me. In other words, I get the best stuff. You offer to me the things that you value the most. But then I want you to take the rest of it, give a portion to the priest, and then I want you to take the rest of it and want you to eat it. Y'all, the peace offering was festive. It was a time in which you kind of partied a little bit. Uh, You you feasted. You had an enjoyment of others' company. In other words, the peace offering was a time of celebration. It was a time to live and celebrate the joy of what we had with God, what he has satisfied for us. Most commentators looked and said there's a direct parallel between what you have in the peace offering and what we have in the Lord's Supper. When Jesus comes along, he sends this this meal to his people that says, every time you do this, you need to remember me, celebrate with me. There's a sense of joy in our fellowship there. Okay? All right, there it is. The grain offering and the peace offering. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what does that have to do with anything that I'm going through? For those of you, it's 10 minutes of boredom is what it's probably been. Well, don't rush past this too quickly. Because I want to throw out something that I hope will help you through the rest of this study. 
And that's this, that the trick to understanding Leviticus is very often in the details. In our case tonight, I want you to notice that the lesson for this whole passage is in the order. Now, you got to remember last week's study that we did. We started off with the burnt offering. Do you remember what that gave to people? It gave them redemption. They had access to have a right relationship with God. Then we find that there's a grain offering, which signified what? Commitment. It showed that you had absolute allegiance to God. And then finally, you had the peace offering, which was a celebration. It was something that showed that you were living in the joy of what you and God had done. And therein lies the key. The key to understanding, and in many ways, everything that I wanted to tell you about in starting a little mini study on the sacrifices in Leviticus is right there. Because in Christianity, the order is everything. If you're curious about the nature of what Christianity is tonight, the order of how we go about understanding what it means for me to be in relationship with God is everything. Now, how do we understand this? Let me see if I can draw out a couple of examples for you to illustrate this. I got a very good friend of mine who is the RUF campus minister at Winthrop University of all places, uh, Jeff Ferguson, who really helped me uh, on some of these in a series that he did through this. Jeff made this interesting observation that I think is so true that in order for us to have any relationship, any relationship at all, there are some of you that are contemplating Brand new dating relationships. This is certainly true of you, what I'm getting ready to say. Some of you are just struggling with relationships with members of the same sex. You're trying to figure out what it means to have a friendship. In any relationship that you have, it's going to require two things. Sacrifice and intimacy. In other words, on the one hand, every relationship, if you're going to really have one, requires a sense of sacrifice. It's costing you something. But on the other hand, every relationship requires a sense of closeness, of being drawn to another person, of loving that other person. In any good relationship, you have to have both. But in Christianity, you have to have one before the other. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. For a lot of people, you want relationships. And I found this very, um, that's what I'm looking for. It's a great way to sort of examine your relationships. Some of us want to have relationships that are based on sacrifice, but no intimacy. Here's what I mean by that. If you're this kind of person, you're the kind of person that in relationships, you just want to know what the rules are. What do you want from me? You end up saying oftentimes to the people around you. In other words, you relate to people and God as if you're simply punching a card. What are the things that you expect of me? Let me live up to those expectations and eventually we'll have a relationship. Hmm. Or do you? I wonder if if you either know people like that or maybe you see that in your own life. If you haven't noticed the cracks being a beginning to form in your own relationships. For the people who look and say, I'm going to live on the basis of the rules with no real connection with people. What happens is, is they start longing for the benefits of the relationship without actually being known by people. Without actually being able to reveal to someone the joy that they have in those relationships. Do you ever have trouble connecting with people? Feeling as if you're connecting with people. Better yet, do other people feel like they're connecting with you? Because it very well might be that you're trying to have a relationship based on sacrifice with no intimacy. 
Look, you can't assume that you and another human being are okay or right with each other just because you did everything right. You ever felt that way? I don't know what happened to us. I did everything right. It can be the very thing that sort of breaks the relationship down. I have a feeling that a lot of people that deal with this kind of relationship are either burned out or fast on the way there. Or or you're one of the more condescending people that your friends know. Because the rules are central to you, it's almost impossible for you not to look down on other people. And people feel that distance. This is a relationship that you're going to have to look at from the opposite side. But I think some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about. I had a conversation this summer with a parent of a student who actually goes to an entirely different school. And that student had done what often happens in college. They had... Well, for lack of a better way of putting it, sort of um, left mom and dad's values, <laughs> shall we say. They'd gone crazy in college. And the parents, of course, were completely nerve-wracked about it. And as I listened to this parent sort of go through this detail of the things that they had done and how much they had hurt them, the parent actually said this. I'm not making this up. At one point, they were like, you know, my wife and I are so frustrated because, you know, we were those parents that did everything right. We made certain that they were in church on a regular basis. We made certain that we had family devotionals. Hmm. (laughs) And there was a part of me that really wanted to say and wished that I had the context to say it, but I didn't know him as well. You know, it very well may be that this is one of the reasons why your kid is rebelling. It's because you're trying to have a relationship with all sacrifice, but no intimacy. You're not willing to admit to your children when you failed. You're not willing to relate to your children on the, as if they're peers growing up into their own sense of independence. Anybody grow up in a home like that? You know how destructive that can be. Look, that's the first kind of relationships, right? The, the second sort of illustration of that is the story of Cain and Abel. Do you remember this story? The very beginning of the Bible, chapter 3 we find, uh, and 4, we find uh, the children of Adam and Eve uh, uh, in a fight. The reason why they're in a fight is because Abel has come and offered the Lord a sacrifice of an animal. He's killed an animal. He's brought it before God and sacrificed it before him. But on the other hand, uh, Cain has brought a sacrifice of the first fruits of his crops. Right? In other words, he brings God a first fruits offering, the grain offering. And most commentators look and say, we don't get the explanation for why that was offensive to God until you get to the book of Leviticus. You see what Cain was saying? He's looking and going, look, God, I'm going to give you all this good stuff. You see this? This is what I've done. You and me, we're on the same page, right? Whereas Abel looks and goes, hmm, if I'm ever going to have a relationship with God, it's only going to be because he's the one who covers me. Like he made those clothes for my parents when they fell. And so therefore I've got to offer this lamb. This lamb has got to go between me and God. You see, Abel understood that sacrifice and intimacy have to go together, but sacrifice has got to come first. Now, for a lot of you, that's not your problem. You don't struggle with having sacrifice with no intimacy. What you want is intimacy with no sacrifice. This one is a little bit different. In other words, you're the kind of person who looks and says, the life of the party. Everybody loves to see me show up. People like you, uh, uh, but there's not a whole lot of people that love you. Who, who feel connected to you. We interact with people oftentimes because we know that this person is going to bolster my self-image. 
You ever had this realization? <laughs> you ever had that moment where you suddenly realize that, you know, this thing that I call my personality is really nothing more than a very sophisticated PR campaign for me. <laughs> I'm wanting people to make me feel good about myself. And that's how I relate to people. In other words, we're using people to, to, to express a sense of closeness. But when it really comes down to it, we wouldn't lift a finger for them if they needed us. Hmm. Got any relationships like that? Look, the point is, what's ironic about those relationships that people have is though they long to have that intimacy, they don't actually have it. And they'll even entertain themselves and carry on a level of superficiality to say that I've got this kind of relationship. But the truth is, it's not really there. I've found over the years that spiritually speaking, these can be very tortured souls. Because in one sense, they instinctively know that the relationship that they, that they profess to have with each other and to God is a lie. You just sense it on the inside. There's something that's not connecting. I've not really connected. I've not really served that person. You want to know why? Because they're the first ones to bolt for the door as soon as things get difficult in the relationship. And you head out. Look, y'all, which is it? Have you ever found yourself in a relationship where you want the sacrifice? Just tell me what the rules are, but no real connection. Or have you ever been in a relationship where you want the connection, but you just aren't willing to give the sacrifice? Because a real relationship with anybody, and of course I'm saying with God too, requires both. To be connected to God means that there's got to be sacrifice. There's got to be a sense of, 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 of living on, on the behalf of someone else's interests. And at the same time, there's got to be the joy that comes from that sacrifice. Look, here's the point. Every relationship costs. Every relationship. Or it's not a relationship. And God is simply looking at his people in Leviticus. And I'll finish with this. And he's saying to his people, What's true for you is no less true for your relationship with me. Every relationship costs. So how are you going to deal with that? Because if we're purporting and claiming to have a relationship with an infinite God as a finite human being, how are we going to cross that gap? That's not even to mention the fact that not only is he infinite and I'm finite, but he's actually holy. And most of the time, I don't even think about him. Look, it comes down to what I would suggest to you is the obligation that's at the heart of these sacrifices. Because Jesus comes along a couple thousand years later and he tells what I think is one of the more interesting stories in the New Testament. It's the parable of what we know as the prodigal son. And the tragedy is that that's a very poor name for it because we typically think that the story's only about the younger son who goes off into the far country and squanders everything he has. But then the gracious father welcomes him back when he comes home after feeding the pigs. And then we stop thinking about the story. Oh, but there's a second son that in my opinion is the real heart of the story. You see, there's another son who stayed home. He was the one who stuck with it. He was the one who followed all the rules. And he looks at his father and says to him, why? I did all this for you. I slaved for you. And, 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 and I don't even get a party, but you give this, you know, terrible son of yours who just wasted your money. You're going to waste this all on him. Interesting, isn't it? 
The first one, what do you have in the first son? You have intimacy, but no sacrifice. In the older son, you have all the sacrifice, but no intimacy. In other words, for both the younger brother and the older brother, and many of us have misread this parable for years, both of them are alienated from the father's heart. And neither of them can look and say that their father and them are together. (laughs) That we're on the same page. That I can look and say that God and I are okay. That I'm happy to relate to him. But then again, the two brothers are not the same, are they? Because one of the brothers actually understood something. You see, when the younger brother comes home and he looks at his father, he looks at him and says, Father, I am, I'm a sinner. I sinned against you and against heaven. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. He toys with saying, just make me like one of your hired servants. But the father won't even listen to him. You want to know what the trick was for this guy? He came home and he realized that there had to be a death. Look, y'all, go back a couple thousand years, back to Leviticus. If you decided that you wanted to go see God, he was in the back of a tent in a place called the Holy of Holies. And there was a little piece of furniture back there that had a seat on top, which you knew was the very place where it was God's footstool, the mercy seat. But here's the deal. He was way back there. When you walked into the front door of that temple, the first piece of furniture that met your eye was an altar. And it's a place of death. You see the point? God is looking and saying, I'm going to give you these sacrifices to let you know that if you're ever going to get back to me, there's got to be a death. And after that death, then we'll talk about what it means to relate to me. Did you catch that order? In other words, in God's calculus, there's only one way in which we relate to him. That is, his sacrifice has got to precede my intimacy with him. In other words, if you don't begin with his sacrifice for me, where he, by grace, does something in me and for me that I can't do for myself, there's no hope for me to actually pledge any obedience to him. And certainly no hope for me to enjoy the joy. Do you see how the progression goes? The burnt offering. Come in. I've related to you. I've substituted for you, he says. He comes and gives the grain offering, the pledge offering, the commitment offering, the offering that looks and says, I will follow you and be completely committed to you. And then finally, the peace offering, the enjoyment of a life with God. Look, my friends, this is all I'm going to lay before you. (laughs) If you don't get that, You've missed not just like a nuance of some interesting theological point that Les brought up Wednesday night. No, I think you've missed Christianity. (laughs) Which is it? Is it that I'm doing enough good things and therefore God likes me? Or is it that God comes to me as a person who's more broken than even I imagine and says, because of my son, Jesus Christ, I have provided for you the ultimate burnt offering like we talked about last week. And on the basis of that, pledge your life to me. And then come and enjoy me. Come and enjoy me. Enjoy the fellowship. I'll be honest with you. 
as long as you remain self-sufficient to your friends, as long as you remain perfectly okay without them, you're probably never going to connect. And for many of us here tonight, is it not possible that that's the reason why you and God have not connected either? Because it's been so terrifying for you to admit that you really aren't self-sufficient, that you can't fix this on your own. That the number one step of Christianity, of being humility, has been beyond you. So much so that you don't even know how to express it. Is that possible? You can consider that an invitation to investigate that. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace to see that very thing? Father, in the faces of these sacrifices, we see what you are longing to do with us. If it means anything to have a relationship with you, it'll have some connection with the kind of relationships we have here. And so we ask that you would reveal that to us, reveal to us what's going on with our own relationships so that we can look at you and realize what's wrong there. And in the end, would you humble us? Would you humble all of us? Because when it all comes down to it, if what you say is true, if you are really there and you are who you say you are, There's no other hope for us to relate to you. Lord Jesus, will you draw us to yourself and being drawn to you, would you draw us to each other so the world might look and see what you're doing in us and that you've been doing with your people since the most ancient of days. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.